Hello, APGov. Welcome to the review for Unit 4. Uh, in this review, I'll go over all the topics that were on the uh, review. That's uh, on E-Class, so if you want the document in front of you, uh, you can find it there. Uh, it's been a minute since I've done one of these things, so uh, I do apologize. I usually podcast a lot more uh, throughout the semester, but I've been distracted. And I am sorry for that. Uh, but anyways, just uh, while you're looking for the review, just a few more things real quick. Don't forget the test will be on E-Class. Uh, you'll be able to take the retake right afterwards, just the ones you missed, and it'll just be a simple retake uh, versus having to write out uh, why questions are right and wrong and all that kind of stuff for this. Uh, while I've got you here, don't forget that the uh, vocab for Unit 4 is also due tonight, which is Thursday the 16th. You have that small window from midnight to 12.30 to get it done. Uh, otherwise, I need that 200-word page paper. No, not 200 pages, but 200 words about why you didn't turn it in on time because you've had like five weeks to get this done. All right, anyways, let's get rolling with the uh, branches of the government. So like I said in class, uh, it's a struggle really to you know keep this test somewhat short. Uh, there's so much uh, that we covered over the course of the last couple of weeks uh, with all the branches of government. Uh, and I tried to balance it out, and I think I did, but, uh, you know, who knows? Um, maybe you might think differently. Uh, all right, anyways, we start off with the functions of the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court, remember, is spelled out in Article Three of the Constitution. And the main reason we have a government, or excuse me, we have a government, the main reason we have a federal court system it's because we didn't have one under the Articles of Confederation. So remember, there was no uniformity of the laws. There was nobody to be the kind of final say-so on what does this law mean? Is this law constitutional? And things like that. There wasn't a constitution. Is this thing an, a valid article? Whatever. I don't know how you would say it for the Articles of Confederation. But the bottom line is there was not that end-all, be-all decision-maker on is this thing a viable legal law? And so the Supreme Court was really created. The main function that they were created for was to kind of decide the constitutionality of the different issues that are going to pop up and be that final decider uh, and be that court of last resort where there is nobody else to go to. Once they have made a decision, that is the decision uh, because we didn't have that under the Articles of Confederation. All right, Baker versus Carr. So there's two court cases, two required court cases for this case, uh, this unit. You had uh, Baker versus Carr, which is on the test, and you had Shaw versus Reno, which is not on this test, but it could show up uh, elsewhere, the final exam, places like that. Uh, Baker versus Carr, though. Remember, first off, it is not a gerrymandering case. All righty. So the uh, Baker versus Carr deals with redistricting, but it's not gerrymandered. It just falls into that area of the unit when we go over that stuff. So Baker, in this case, lives in Tennessee, and they live in a district that is highly populated. And the population has swelled over the last 40 years because Tennessee has not redistricted since 1920. And so that's where, where the, the, the problem comes from, because this guy Baker looks around and sees the representative having to represent whatever the number of people that's in this county is or in this district is. It's a huge number versus the rural areas where the population has left is very small. So you have this unbalanced representation. You have underrepresentation versus overrepresentation. The people in Baker's district are underrepresented because there's so many people and one person is trying to represent them. 
versus the rural areas where there's over-representation. There is so few people and one person's representing them very, I don't say easily, but much easier than when there's a lot of people. And so the court's going to rule, uh, and this is where the one person, one vote comes from, and the idea that we just want to keep our districts as equal as possible. And so this is what's going to really encourage states to redistrict every 10 years is because there are population shifts uh, within the uh, states. You know, even if you don't get to reapportion uh, and gain or lose house seats, you still need to redistrict because the population is going to change. All right, the types of committees. So you need to know all four, the standing the conference, the select, and the joint. But for this test, the select and the joint aren't on it, so I'm not going to go over those here. So the types of committees that you got to know are the standing and the conference committee. So the standing committee, remember, those are the committees that exist in both houses, <clears throat> House and the Senate, and they are the permanent ones. And they are like the giant umbrella because you've got the House Ways and Means Committee. And then underneath it, you've got a bunch of subcommittees that deal with the different aspects of revenue. Education, all the different aspects of education, so on and so forth. So you have these kind of overarching committees, and then you have the sub subcommittees that kind of trickle down from them. All right. Uh, but the standing committee, they do a couple things. We're going to kind of get into it a little bit later with the uh, the congressional oversight and the functions of committees and things like that. Um, but they're going to be where most of the work takes place. Remember, you know, on the House side, we they have to have the committees because there's no way for 435 people to get anything done with pieces of legislation. So they really have to have these breakout sessions with the committees and even with the subcommittees to get any work done on any of the legislation. So it's very important there. Uh, also, don't forget that the chair is always going to come from the majority party. Okay? Always going to come from the majority party, because that's one of the benefits of being the majority party is you get to to you know be the have the most votes uh, for legislation, and you also have to get have the most votes on the uh, on the committees when you're trying to decide do we vote favorably or not for this thing. Uh, and then the what you call it uh, the conference committees. Remember that's when there is a difference. So when a bill passes the House, it goes over to the Senate, and it passes. In a different version, whatever that version might be, whether it's words are different, whether it's money is different, whatever the whatever the difference is, they can't send that to the president. So it has to go to this conference committee. So it kind of goes back in and people from the House, people from the Senate come together. Typically, people that worked on it are going to come together and try and sort it out. OK, uh, and if they can come to an agreement and a compromise, then it goes back to the House and the Senate and they vote on it. And typically they'll vote favorably and then it can go to the president. All right, so that's the types of committees. Uh, all right, the bureaucracy powers. Okay, the main powers that the bureaucracy has is or lies in the enforcement, okay? And it comes from the, right, the, the ability to write up the regulations that come from their interpretation of the mandates, from the laws, from the policies, whatever, that, whatever it is Congress sends them, they get to interpret that. That's where their main power comes from, because they get to write up their standard operating procedure that's going to determine this is how we're going to regulate this. This is how we're going to enforce that. They also have some judicial powers as well. They get to judge to an extent and say, hey, we're going to fine people here. We're going to charge people and try and send them to jail here. Now, this is borderline separation of powers issues, right? Because the executive branch is only supposed to enforce but here we have these agencies that are writing up regulations and saying, hey, well, we're going to do this, this, and this from this law. That's kind of a legislative power. 
So it was really borderline um, on that violating the separation of powers idea that we we have. All right, the hiring and firing of executives. So remember that the cabinet can be fired. People that are cabinet members, uh, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Education, Transportation, HUD, all those things. Okay, the president, you really serve at the pleasure of the president. If they don't like the job you're doing, they can get rid of you pretty quickly and pretty easily. Versus some of those regulatory commissions and some of those independent executive agencies, which the president really can't do much with. All right, the president can't go in and fire the NASA director. They can't get rid of the Federal Reserve director, the CIA director. They don't have that power and that ability to be able to do that because, they, remember, they are independent of the president. All right, the consequences of lifetime terms. So, remember, we have lifetime terms because we want our judges to be free of the political pressure that exists. We don't want them to have to worry about elections. We don't want them to be looking at a piece of uh of, of law or what well, that's not the right way to say it of a having a decision in front of them and thinking to themselves well hey if I make this decision it's going to upset this group of voters we don't want that we don't want that to be a part of their um, in their mindset we want them to just rule on the constitutionality of stuff and so they don't have to worry about elections they do not run uh, really the people me and you we have no voice when it comes to the judges. They make their decisions and they are very insulated from us. In fact, uh, they don't have to listen to us at all because we don't have a voice uh, when it comes to you know, choosing them and things like that. OK, uh, and then we also want them to be free of presidential and congressional influences as well. And so um, they cannot be fired. Now, they can be impeached. We'll talk about that with the checks in a few minutes. But um, at the end of the day, you know, we want them to be free to make the decisions that need to be made. And sometimes they're tough decisions. Now, what's the consequence of a lifetime term? Well, we need to remember that once you put them on there, most of the people that have become judges are gonna be on there for 20, 30, 40 years. So their ideology and the president's ideology that picked them is typically gonna match up. And so the president that picked them, they have their beliefs, their ideologies staying on the bench well past their terms, okay? That's the consequence. All right, the congressional leadership, uh, I said this in class, and, I'm, and same thing for this podcast. I'm not going to try and go through every position. Uh, but there's a flow chart that you ought to read and interpret on the test. I will just kind of mention who they are. On the House side, you got the Speaker of the House. They're the ones that drive the agenda. They have a hand in almost everything that goes on in the House. Then you got the majority and the minority leader over there. And then you got the whips. Those are the kind of the three big ones. On the Senate side, you have the president of the Senate, which is the vice president, but remember, they're never there. So you have this honorary position, the president pro tempore of the Senate, which really doesn't do much of anything. Then you got the majority minority leader there, and they're supposed to work together to, you know, kind of set the agenda for the House. I mean, for, excuse me, for the Senate. And then you got the whips there, too. So both sides have the whips. Both sides kind of have the majority minority leaders, but they do very different things. On the House side, the majority leader works with the speaker. The minority leader really can't do much of anything. Okay. They just don't, there's not much recourse that they have. On the Senate side, they have a lot more things they can do to organize the minority party against the majority party. Think of the filibuster and things like that. All right, let's take a break and then we'll be back and we'll continue on. All right, welcome back. So on the review, we're picking up with the checks on the courts. Now the different branches have different checks. Congress has some, the president has some, the states have some checks even 
on the, uh, the the court. And this is part of that Fed 78 thing that you should have got about how the Fed, how the court is the weakest of the branches because um, they have to rely on other branches to get anything done. Their decisions have to be enforced by other people. And so that makes them the weakest branches. So that was, you know, hey, oh, my God, the Supreme Court and the court system is going to become too powerful and they're going to make all these decisions. But at the end of the day, they have to have other people that check them and make sure that the, the or that implement the actual policies that they rule on. All right. So a couple of the things uh, Congress has uh, always in the back pocket of Congress is the legislative power. They can legislate. They can make a piece of legislation uh, that counteracts any decision that the courts make. Now, the problem with legislation is twofold. First off, it takes time. It takes forever sometimes to make a, a law. So it's not that easy to just, oh, we don't like that decision. Let's write up a law. Because you got you to write it, then you got to send it to Congress. You got to go to the House, got to go to the Senate. The President's got to sign it. A lot of pieces going on there, moving pieces going on there. Uh, the other problem with it is if you do get it passed, once it's challenged, the court can always rule that unconstitutional. So there's no guarantee about legislation. Uh, they can also, <coughs> excuse me, create an amendment, which is a little more ironclad, but once again, it's not that easy of a process. You have to have uh, Congress come together and, you know, propose it and vote on it and say, yes, this is what we want to do. And then you have to have the states sign off on it. And so, yes, it sounds like, hey, let's just do that. That would be easy, but it's not that easy of a thing to do. Uh, impeachment is always something they can do. We've had several pre uh, judges impeached throughout the years, and we've actually had, pre uh, I keep on messing up here, we have had judges removed from their positions uh, based on the impeachment pr proceedings. Uh, so that's something that can happen. It's the same process. A judge does something wrong. The House votes to impeach. The Senate holds a trial and uh, will take them, you know, to uh, and remove them. Uh, the other thing I didn't touch on too much because it doesn't happen that often. In fact, I can't I don't I don't recall it happening um, in my lifetime. But uh, the Congress has the power and the ability to affect the jurisdiction or not the original versus appellate, but to affect the geographic jurisdiction and region of the district courts of the appellate courts. So that could be always something that's in the back pocket of, of Congress. Hey, we don't like what this district is doing. So Georgia has three. Let's say they don't like what the middle court district is doing. So they reduce Georgia down to two districts from the three. They can always do stuff like that. The president, Oh, yeah. The other thing they have is the confirmation power. Sorry, I almost forgot that. Uh, they do get to confirm the um, what you call it, the uh, every appointment that the president makes to the judgeship. So that's a check as well. Uh, and that's a check for the president. They get to appoint the judges to these positions. All the federal judges get appointed by the president at some point. Um, and then the big one is implementation. And this goes in line with the states as well. The president and the states are the ones that are going to actually implement the decisions that the judges make. And that's why, once again, Fed 78 said they're so weak because they have to rely on other people to implement their policies. And I gave you a couple, Brown versus Board of Education for the states. The southern states did not implement that decision very quickly. Okay, we know this from 54 to 65, 66, 67. It took a long time for the South to actually integrate. And then the example that we talked about uh, with the president was Andrew Jackson and John Marshall about Worcester versus Georgia, where the Cherokee actually won, but Jackson was like, well, hey, John Marshall, you made your decision. Now you come down here and enforce it. And obviously the courts cannot do that. All right, the functions of the committees, a uh, couple of things. 
First off is oversight. And remember, oversight is where they're going to call to task the different agencies that are out there. So when an agency does something that a committee does not like, and remember the iron triangle relationship. So you have the committees and they are watching the different agencies that they're in charge of. So it's something that they do. It's not just, um, you know, we'll call them this random agency to ask questions of. No, it's part of that iron triangle relationship. And so the committee has an idea of what the different agencies are doing. And if they're doing something they don't like or something they're going to question, then they can always call them in for an oversight hearing. Okay. Uh, bill work is going to be the other big one. The committees and the subcommittees specifically are going to do a lot of work, obviously, on the bills. That's where all the work takes place is in those subcommittees. Uh, now, kind of the one outlier about the, the function of the committee is the rules committee. They're different from any other committee because, remember, they're the ones that are going to set a lot of the, the rules. That's why they're called the rules committee for the, um, the House. Okay. Uh, when a bill makes it through committee, it goes to the rules committee and they'll set the agenda. They'll put it on the calendar. They'll set the debate time. They'll say if it's an open, closed thing for amendments and all that sort of stuff. All right. Some powers of the House, the powers of the Senate. So the big power of the House is going to be that all revenue bills have to start over there. And, you know, that's an important thing because revenue is a huge, a huge deal. Okay. And so they have that power because they're supposed to be more in tune, more close uh, if that's a way to say it, probably not. But they are closer to us as, as individuals. And remember, the House is all about the individuals. That's one of the big differences. Uh, they are more for us than the Senate is. The Senate is for the entire state. Okay. Um, and then on the Senate side, uh, they have the confirmation power. And the confirmation power of the different positions. So ambassadorships, federal judges. They confirm all those. They confirm treaties, remember? Um, so they have all those powers and all those, well, I shouldn't say all those powers, but that's one of the big things and one of the big differences uh, that they have. Congressional oversight, kind of already gone over this a little bit, so I'm not going to spend too much time here, but this is where the different committees will call in the different agencies. It can also be public citizens. Though. Let, let me say that. Uh, it doesn't have to just be an uh, agency. They can call in the public. They can call me or you in. Now, they're probably not, but, you know, they have that power and that ability with a subpoena. All right, the vetoes. Uh, so the president is the one that has the veto power. They can veto a piece of legislation uh, that gets to them. Um, that I told you in class about the, the House passing that piece of legislation that said we're going to reduce the, the transportation guy's salary to a dollar. Let's say the Senate actually entertained it, voted on it, and sent it on to the president. That's the president's guy. He picked Pete Buttigieg. Okay. The president's not going to sign that. He would veto it pretty quickly. So that's within their, their power. You also have the pocket veto. Remember, the pocket veto is all about the timing. A bill has to be signed by the president before Congress adjourns. So if the Congress sends the president a piece of legislation that is got less than 10 days before they adjourn, so let's say they send it to the president with five days left in the session. The president can always just let that sit. Once Congress adjourns, that bill dies. That's a pocket veto. The president has to do nothing other than just let it sit on their desk. All right, the filibuster and the cloture. So the filibuster is a Senate-only tool. This is something only the Senate can do because they have unlimited debate. 
Remember, the House does not have that. They have strict rules on debating. So the minority party in the Senate has a very valuable and very powerful tool of the filibuster. Now, a lot of times you're going to hear people say, oh, filibuster, that is to kill a bill. And you're kind of trying to do that, but at the end of the day, you're not going to actually kill it. You don't kill the bill with filibuster. You might get the majority party to, to skip it, to get rid of it, to, you know, to kind of kill it. But the goal is to delay as much as you can, because remember, the Senate has a lot of stuff they're working on. And they have a timeline. We just said that the president can pocket veto stuff that doesn't get to his desk before the 10 days is up. So if we're there and we're talking and talking and talking and talking about this bill, we are delaying everything else that the Senate needs to get done. And the majority party has a limited amount of time where they're the majority. You never know what's going to happen in the next election cycle. So they got to get stuff done. So as the minority with a filibuster, you're really hoping to put pressure on that majority party to make the changes that you want to see or to just completely just forget about a bill. Now, a filibuster can be ended by a cloture vote. Remember, you got to have 60. If 60 people uh, in the Senate say, yes, let's end debate, then debate is over and we just vote on the issue at hand. Okay, uh, it's called a supermajority because you got 60 people. There's no supermajority right now. So no one can end a filibuster right now. Well, I mean, I guess you could if it's some kind of nonpartisan thing. But if it's down party lines and the majority parties fighting against the minority party or vice versa, uh, then, you know, and it's like it is now where it's 5149 advantage, then no one's going to vote for the closure. All right, the delegate, trustee, and politico. Remember, these are models of representation. The delegate, if you elect me to be your representative or your senator, and I take on the delegate model of representation, that means that no matter what I believe, I'm going with what you want. I'm going with what you believe. Okay? So even if I'm against what I think you're for, I'm still voting for your your stuff, because you're my constituents. You're the ones that vote on me. If I'm following the trustee model, then I do what I want to. Uh, you trusted me to make decisions for you. I know best. So even though I'm running the risk of going against you, I'm going to vote for this bill this way because it's what I think is best. And then Politico is both. So if, if we're doing the Politico model, that's where we do both. And this is what most people are going to do. On the big things, they're going to take the, the delegate model, okay? On like high-profile legislation that's going to get a lot of media coverage that uh, constituents are going to know about, hear about, and have a voice about, uh, they're going to do what they want them to do. They're going to follow the constituents because they're the ones that got to reelect them. On small things that might be considered insignificant, they'll do what they want to, okay? And so that happens all the time. All right, let's take one last break. When we get back, we'll finish this study guide up. All right, welcome back. Uh, let's wrap this thing up. So first up, uh, we're picking up with the independent executive agencies versus the regulatory commission. So the independent executive agencies, remember, they don't always have the same regulatory power that regulatory commissions do. Now, you know, some things do. And so we, we kind of get thrown off a little bit because the EPA does regulate, but they are considered an independent executive agency. Um, but anyways, so the independent executive agency is going to be over some part of whatever it might be, some sector, some part of the, the country, uh, and they are independent from the president. They're independent from Congress. They really get to do their own thing. And the big difference is they don't really have that regulatory power more often than not. Okay. So I gave you some examples, the 
the NASA is an independent executive agency. They don't get to regulate space. CIA, they don't get to regulate the spy game. Okay, they don't have the, that regulatory power versus the independent regulatory commissions, which are also independent of the president and independent of Congress. But they were created to regulate specifically created to regulate some specific industry, some specific area to make sure that we as citizens are treated fairly and have a, a, a fair shake, basically. Okay, so think about the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. They were created to watch over and regulate the, the stock market, basically. All right. Now, they're not doing fiddling with prices and things like that, but they are trying to make sure there's no insider trading going on, making sure the businesses are on the up and up, that if we go buy a stock, that we have the fair, the same opportunity uh, to make money as someone who's working inside the company or whatever it might be. Alrighty, so they're going to try and make sure that everything's fair and everything's on the up and up. They have that regulatory power. The FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, I talked about in class, they regulate the food industries. They regulate the medicines. All that stuff that's on the shelves, you go to Kroger right now and you walk down the shelves, everything that you see has been approved by the FDA. Alrighty. Okay, fiscal versus monetary policy. Fiscal policy is what Congress and the president can use to try and affect change within the economy. And this is their budgetary items, basically. Okay, uh, they can use taxes, they can use spending. Uh, and remember, we said in class that macroeconomics is going to try and tell you that hey, taxes is an easy way to change um, the the economy, to affect unemployment, to affect inflation, because that's the two things that the government fights. But remember, taxes is not that easy, and it takes a long time to get anything done when it comes to taxes. So really, they use the the budget, they use the spending. Okay, they spend more to fight unemployment. They spend less to fight inflation. Monetary policy is what the Federal Reserve does. The Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve is also charged with fighting unemployment and inflation, and they're going to use the money supply to fight it. When there's unemployment, they're going to try and increase increase the money supply. When there is inflation, they're trying to decrease the money supply. Uh, we don't. We're not going to get into the tools that they use, the interest rates, and, and all that kind of stuff. You'll get into that with macroeconomics. So just wait for those those days. All right, discretionary versus mandatory spending, pretty easy. Discretionary spending is where they have some choice. And when I say they, I mean Congress. So all the budgets of all the different agencies that are out there, that's discretionary. There's no where it says it's set in stone. Hey, Congress has to spend 10 gazillion dollars on NASA. They have to spend 20 gazillion dollars on the military. It doesn't say that anywhere. They can fund them as they see fit. That's discretionary, where they get to make some choices about how much money they give somebody or some agency or whatever it might be. Mandatory spending is the spending that is written into law. There is no, well, hey, we don't want to pay for this this year. And I know I keep on bringing up Social Security, but it's the best example that we have. Social Security is mandatory. They have written into law that they're going to fund that every single year. There is no choice. There is no, let's think about it. It's what it is. It's that entitlement spending. It's that entitlement that they have to, that people that are on Social Security are going to get it. They're entitled to it. They cannot say we're not going to spend it this year. Uh, redistricting, remember, that happens when we, re, re, when we do the census, okay? Uh, it's got to happen when a state reapportions. And so if a state loses or gains seats in the House, they have to redistrict. They don't have a choice. If a state does not get reapportioned, if they maintain the amount of districts they have, it's still best policy and best practice to go ahead and redistrict because you do have population shifts. Uh, within the states. So Georgia did not lose or gain seats in the House this past census cycle. 
but we still redistricted just because of the different populations uh, or the population shifts within the state. But that's what redistricting is. Don't forget that the state legislatures do this, so it is their job. Personal opinion here, I think independent groups, independent companies, somebody other than the state legislatures uh, should come in. Someone who doesn't have a stake in you know, drawing these lines uh, unfairly should come in and do the actual drawing. Now, redistricting can lead to gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is where you draw the lines to benefit you and your party. Alrighty? And it is legal. It does happen. However, at this point in time, they the lines can be challenged. All right. On the last thing on the uh, review, you got restraint versus activism. So judicial restraint is where judges are going to really rely on the Constitution. Uh, and you might sometimes see it as original intent. So they're going to try and focus in uh, on, on that. Okay, what did the framers mean when they wrote this? Uh, they're going to try and leave their ideologies at the door and make a ruling just based on the Constitution. So I gave you the Texas versus Johnson case and the U.S. versus Lopez. I'm not going to go back over those in too much depth, but just remember flag burning was not popular at the time. And it would have been very easy for the court to say, okay, we're going to rule in favor of the law, of the Texas law. But they chose the Constitution, because they said the First Amendment protects symbolic speech along with the freedom of speech. U.S. versus Lopez would have been very easy to let the government just have the Commerce Clause because they've done it so many times in the past, but they chose to kick him out of that case. Uh, activism is where the judges are bringing their personal ideologies into it. They're kind of painting outside of the Constitution maybe a little bit. They're actively trying to set policy. All righty. Uh, and we gave the examples of Brown versus Board where they overturned the Plessy versus Ferguson case. Uh, we gave the Miranda versus Arizona case where they gave that guy a second trial because of the rights of the accused was an important thing to them, even though most people were like, nah, it's not that big of a deal. But that's what the Constitution says. Um, and so they wanted to make sure that they allowed people to have that right. Basically, uh, let me take a step back for just a second about the Miranda case. So previously, to the Miranda. We never talked about this, but previously in like 1946, um, the court had ruled that the states don't have to honor the Fifth Amendment. Okay. Uh, and so that was the policy from 1946 until this case in 1965 or so, when the court said, no, the Fifth Amendment is applicable to uh, the states and they have to honor that uh, Fifth Amendment part of, of, of no, uh, you don't have to talk to the police. So um, basically, you know, they brought in their own ideologies, their own beliefs there. Okay. All right. Just a few random things uh, that show up in some charts and graphs and things like that. Uh, some quotes uh, that I didn't put on there, um, but you might, might be helpful to know. Okay. So first off, executive orders. Remember, these are directives to the different agencies. There's a passage about it. That's, that's why it's not in there. Uh, but uh, just remember, you know, they, they, Congress does not get to look at them and uh, they are usually going to be used when the president and Congress is of two different parties. When Congress is not working with the president, the president will kind of legislate through executive orders. Uh, they are different from executive agreements. That's also on the, you'll see that term on there. Uh, and remember, this is an agreement with a foreign country and the president can make these and the Senate does not get to confirm it like they do uh, with the treaties. Uh, lots of charts and graphs, like I said. Uh, Fed 78, a passage that you have to be able to know. We just did that on Monday in this in the class or Tuesday in the class where you read through it. Um, and just remember, you know, this the the court is the weakest branch. So the concern that the branch was going to become too powerful, there's no way for them to become too powerful because the president, the states, 
they have to be the ones to implement their law, their policies. There's no way for the court to make a decision and then go out and enforce it themselves. So even if they make an unpopular decision, the president can ignore it. The states can ignore it, like we've seen them do. Uh, the Iron Triangles, uh, just remember that's the relationship between the committees slash subcommittees, typically the subcommittees, the interest groups, and the different agencies. Uh, the district versus the appellate courts. Uh, remember, the district court is going to be the workhorse of the federal court system. Almost every single court case goes through the district court, and they are going to be the ones that have the traditional trial. They will they will hear evidence, hear from witnesses, testimony, all that kind of stuff. Versus the appellate court, which is just going to review um, the previous court's decisions and try and make a decision uh, about your appeal. So typically your appeal is going to be centered around something happened at the trial. Some, you know, there was uh, some kind of procedural error, your rights were not maintained or whatever it might be. The appellate court is going to look at the records to look for that. They don't have a trial per se. They don't bring in witnesses. They don't bring in evidence. All right. I think that is it. If you have questions, feel free to email me or talking points me. I'm up till about 1030 or so uh, in the evening. Uh, or I'm here early at school around 6 o'clock, 6 to 10, 6 15, somewhere there, depending upon what time my son gets up and gets going. Uh, but anyways, best of luck on the test, and I'll see you in class. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.